This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, one of the biggest victims of this new age of information and uh, technology is going to be the relationship, right? And as a relationship coach, uh, I do believe it's something we need to pay close attention to. So it will be today's topic of the Coach's Corner. How do we how do we close the closeness gap? Many people are struggling um, feeling close to another person. They, they, they feel lonely personally and, uh, you know, interpersonally, they feel like they just aren't close to their partner, to their kids. Um, it's hard when everyone's sitting looking at their phones and no one's connecting and talking, you might start to feel like you don't matter, that you are irrelevant. And um, there's it is a plague, quite honestly, and, and yet it's something that we, we can fix. But like our good guest Andrew Merle was just saying, you might need to make some choices, like the choice to put the phone away. And that's that's easier said, and I say it, and every time I say it, I notice that I, I still have a hard time putting my phone away because the phone makes it so I don't need to be vulnerable. I don't need to talk to anybody. I'm tired. Just once I pull it out, everyone kind of leaves me alone. But some of that then fosters this sense of loneliness. And uh, one of the things, there's a great book out there that I would highly recommend um, uh, called Stop Being Lonely. And it's um, uh, the Kira, Kira somebody. Let me find, look up her name. But it's in the book. Um, one of the ideas behind the concept of stop being lonely is what we really need to do is start to feel more um, more of an ability to get to understand the people around us. We really have to kind of step in and get uh, to understand who we are married to, who we are living with. Uh, Kira Asatryan is the author of the book, Stop Being Lonely, Three Simple Steps to Developing Close Relationships and Deep – or Close Friendships and Deep Relationships. But one of the interesting things she teaches is uh, don't just assume you understand the person you're with. And I did this yesterday with a, with a couple where I had them identify on a list of positive traits and negative traits um, what are their top you know, eight – you know, positive ways that they see themselves, and what are some of the negative ways they see themselves? That that they in their in their head, in their heart of hearts, they really they feel this way. Uh, they they and and basically, this couple had been arguing about a situation, and um, we did this activity, and then I had them turn to each other and talk about what they found. One person's uh, one of his top traits was loyalty. Another person's top trait, the female's top trait, was. Um, just just uh, com- compassion and, um, you know, and, and just a sense of compassion for others. And what ends up happening is uh, the, the male's negative trait was stubbornness and the female's negative trait was confusion. So what ends up happening in their relationship is a lot of times the, the wife is compassionately serving her children while the husband is lonely and loyal and wondering why she isn't more loyal to him. And then they fight. And what was amazing is, is I had them start identifying how they both see themselves and how their partner sees themselves. It changes the entire discussion. 
he's not being stubborn because he hates her. He's being stubborn because that's just his weakness. And she doesn't get confused about not loving him or loving the kids. I mean, that confusion is not coming because she doesn't love him. It's coming because she's so compassionate. She's going to always take care of the one that's in the need. Well, then he has to create a need for her to be able to be compassionate. The power of if you want to be um, more connected to others is you've got to understand where they're coming from, from their frame of reference. If they're trying to do something and they want loyalty, you need to understand that. If they want more compassion, you need to understand that. Understanding somebody is the antidote to creating a closer relationship. So a little challenge for you. Put down the phones. Go try to understand each other. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Politics. We talk about it all the time. We spent the whole first hour of the show, if you missed it, reviewing uh, the Super Saturday and, you know, all the latest and greatest. But one of the things that I run into, because I have six children, and I'm trying to raise them in a healthy world, right? But my kids are all uh, from years of 10 years of age up to 22. And they're getting into this political race, every one of them. Uh, the other night we were watching one of the debates, and every one of my kids from 10 up had questions about what's going on. They, they asked things like, why is Donald such a, such a bully? You know, is Hillary Clinton going to jail because of her emails? I ask them, where do you guys get these ideas? And they say they're talking about it in school. So they're bringing up the debates in their school. And it dawned on me that um, I probably need to be teaching my kids more about politics and about how this process works. So I put together some points about how to raise positive people instead of powerful politicians. I also realized that uh, there's probably no more political environment that exists than in the halls of a junior high school where it's, you know, the jocks versus the geeks versus the whatever, surfers, whatever you've got, the, the, the boarders, whatever you call them, the skaters. It's political. It's a crazy political world. And so here are three very basic lessons um, uh, that I try to teach my kids from what we're seeing in a debate, for example – and real-life situations that they can go use in their own world. Number one, actions speak louder than words, right? Let our actions do the talking, not our words. You'll notice some politicians can get up there and just talk about their, their results um, because they, they have results, or any of the candidates do. They talk about what they've done in their life that shows that they're a trustworthy candidate. Uh, some people, though, also try to use their words to cover up their past, Gandhi had a great quote that said, you can't talk your way out of something you behaved your way into. So if, if you've had bad behavior in the past, try to talk all you want about it. It doesn't go away by you talking. It goes away by getting results. So positive people trust that their past is going to do the talking for them. They might need to you know, share their past, but they don't need to exaggerate. They don't need to name call. They don't need to make stuff up about others which we see going on in this political debate. We, we, we don't have to be full of anger and name-calling in order to get and be seen. We also, you'll notice when people are starting to up the rhetoric, when they're starting to become more aggressive, when they speak louder, when their speech is faster, 
They're probably trying to distract you. They're getting hijacked, I call it, and they're distracting you from the real issue. So notice it. And I talk to my kids about it. A a leader does this. A leader speaks this way. A leader doesn't talk about other people. They talk about their results. They talk about their goals. They don't have to tear down someone else's position. They can focus on their position instead of being calculated and, you know, name-calling. And we've talked about it on the show. In this last election, we've heard about people's hands, hair, spray tan, sweatiness, their tone, all of it. Another rule is value people more than popularity and power. If you want to be an influential leader, then value people. Don't just value being popular. A healthy, positive person sees the inherent worth of everybody. They don't just see people as a voting block. They don't, know, they don't even try to break people into their groups. They try to see that all people are whole. They're all, they all have physical, social, emotional, spiritual needs. Our politicians break us into social groups by color, by race, or by, by gender, by, um, by how much income we make. We, we aren't just a bunch of groups. I'm more than my ethnicity. I'm more than my religion. I'm more than my gender. I'm a whole person. So see people as a whole. And also don't see people as just a means to your end. How many times do you feel like these politicians are taking you for granted because you're a means to them getting elected? And I think some of the anger we see in the country is the mere fact that we, we nominate you, we elect you, but we don't end up getting taken care of. And I think that's why so many people are sick and tired of politics. People value the people. Value them for just being a fellow traveler on this earth, not somebody that's going to make you more popular. That, this goes on in high school, too. Whether you're a jock or a cheerleader or a skater or whatever, you've got to just learn to like people instead of using people to get what you want. Last rule I try to teach my kids is the confidence is going to always come from the inside out, not the outside in. That's exactly the opposite of what we see most of our politicians you know, exhibiting. Their confidence comes from their last poll. How many times do the polls get brought up in this process? The person that is talking the most about the polls probably is the most insecure person. The poll is not the key, right? At some point, I need to get my confidence from the inside. Positive, healthy people get their confidence from knowing who they are, knowing what they believe in, having a belief system that they're living. Their confidence comes from being a good person who believes in certain principles and lives certain principles. And they'll stand by their principles even if they don't win the election even if they're not seen as popular. And that changes them on the inside. When we look at the politicians that are constantly shifting and changing, we worry about them. I also, by the way, worry about politicians that can't collaborate. You can still try to understand someone else's needs and live your principles and find some meeting place in the middle, something I think our, our politicians are struggling with. This isn't about polls. This isn't about popularity. But I know it is for a 14-year-old kid that wants to be popular with his peer group and might end up doing stupid things in order to get elected or in order to be brought into that peer group. What I'm afraid of, though, is we're seeing the same thing in our political world. Very basic stuff, right? Confidence comes from the inside out, not the outside in. Value people more than popularity. And actions speak louder than words. Oh, 
If I can teach it to my uh, my 12-year-old, my 15-year-old, we could probably teach it to our politicians. Wouldn't that be great? You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Parents teach their children that if they work hard, it will pay off, right? Although we teach our children that a cultivation of talent, sweat, and tears is what helps us to succeed, there might be a little more to the equation. And uh, psychologically, it actually might do better for us and for the rest of the world if we would start to look at luck and the impact uh, luck has on whether we succeed or not, instead of just giving, you know, attributing all of our success to ourselves. Today, joining us is Dr. Robert H. Frank. He's a professor of management and economics at Cornell University and the author of the book Success and Luck, Good Fortune and the Myth of Meritocracy. And he's here to help us answer some questions on the subject. Uh, Dr. Robert H. Frank, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is um, such an interesting discussion because what does, a, what does an economics professor – why are you talking about luck? Uh, I got interested in luck, I think, primarily because I've been uh, such a conspicuous beneficiary of it in my own life. I've had uh, the the good fortune of surviving a couple of near-death experiences and was very lucky in in terms of some career breaks I got early on. Uh, So I think the, the general tendency is that luck doesn't hit us over the head quite as hard as it has in my case, most of the time. And so we're, we're more likely to just overlook the role of chance events in life. Uh, you know, every life is a, a series of thousands of steps. They're small steps mostly, but if any one of them had been different, that shifts the path just a little bit, and then the, the differences accumulate over time. So outcomes that seem like they were under our control and inevitable when they, when they happen, uh, really weren't inevitable. They could have turned out very differently if, if any, any one of a thousand little things had been different along the way. Yeah. And a lot of, it seems like a lot of what your point is um, in your book and in the research as well is how you see the event as kind of earned, you know, meritocracy, something you've earned and created and deserved is it creates a different approach to how you approach the world with your luck, your benefit, versus if you see it as something that was just uh, kind of chance. No, that's right, man. I, I use as an epigram in the book uh, a line from an E.B. White essay. Uh, he, he wrote that luck is not a subject you can mention in the presence of self-made men. Uh, <laughs> and I think there is a tendency, if you've been successful, uh, almost certainly you did work hard for a long time. Most successful people are hardworking. They're, they're also talented they got up early, they worked late, they solved hard problems, they vanquished very formidable foes along the way. Those are the natural ingredients of your narrative. They spring uh, very quickly to mem- from memory when you're constructing your life story. But, you know, the little things that may have made a difference, maybe you had a teacher that kept you out of trouble in the 11th grade or, or some uh, promotion you got early on, maybe there was a more qualified colleague who couldn't accept it because he had to stay home to take care of an ailing parent. I mean, those things don't uh, spring as readily to mind when you're 
figuring out why you did so well in life. And so I think the the lesson is that uh, if you can reflect on that and and acknowledge that yeah you had you had if you'd been born in Somalia Somalia things wouldn't have turned out quite as well for you probably mm. if if you could dwell on that for a minute uh, it seems to transform the way you think about your life and and not in a bad way I mean it makes you feel grateful for the fact that things turned out well for you it makes you feel a uh, a desire to reach out and, and help other people uh, enjoy the, the kinds of breaks that you had. So, yeah, I think it's people are worried that if they acknowledge that they had a few breaks along the way, that, that people are going to want to take things away from them or not give them credit. But that doesn't seem to be the effect at all. Right. People, people like it when you acknowledge that you, you had a few break, breaks along your path to the top. Yeah, and I guess it all it makes it more um it seems less mythical, right? Less mysterious. And and we've heard this right. in stories about um I I guess a lot of the tech gurus, the the um I I guess all of these people that we hold up, Bill Gates for example, happened to have lived and go to school where they were doing a lot of coding as young people. Right. And so he had an opportunity to code more and faster than and, and have more opportunity to do that. He wasn't just pure genius. He was pure genius with opportunities. You talk about a really interesting opportunity that really saved your life um, that you alluded to a little bit earlier. Maybe talk about your crazy heart moment. <laughs> Uh, I was playing tennis with my longtime friend and collaborator, Tom Gilovich. It was 10 years ago now, almost 10 years ago. Uh, he tells me uh, that I complained of feeling nauseated during the second set we were playing on a Saturday morning. As we sat during a changeover, he said the next thing he knew, I had fallen off the bench. I was lying completely still, no pulse, no mm-hmm. breath. Uh, he called out for somebody to dial 911, and then he flipped me onto my back and started pounding on my chest. Uh, he, he couldn't get anywhere with that until finally, after many minutes, he said he got a cough out of me. But then I, I expired yet again, and he was giving up uh, when in through the door bursts the EMT crew. Uh, they put the paddles on me. They, they got me revived again and they they flew me to a hospital in pennsylvania uh, where they put me on ice overnight i was completely out of it for uh two or three days Mm. unable to speak a coherent sentence but then woke up on day three with a clear head and Mm. and i've been fine ever since i i had suffered an episode of sudden cardiac death wow Uh, i I was told by by doctors and and 98 percent of the people die uh stay dead from those episodes, I made it uh, because just by chance there had been two auto accidents that had occurred near the tennis facility where we were playing. It's five minutes out of town, five miles out of town. It would have taken half an hour for an ambulance to reach me. Oh normally. my heavens! But but one of the accidents wasn't serious, and so the driver of, of the ambulance who'd been assigned to it peeled off and came to me. And except for that, you know, I'm not here. Yeah. So yeah. I, you could say, well, that's fate, that's divine intervention, who knows what it is, but I think it, I was just the beneficiary of a lucky combination of events that day. Mm-hmm. Well, and and you also live in a country that has, you know, medical EMS that can get there and right. that can communicate right. and defibrillate and 
get you to a hospital that – oh, then they life-flighted you or air-flighted you to a, another hospital where there were experts. So, yeah, lucky, but also, I guess, yeah. economically privileged. Is it the same thing? Yeah. Uh, if if you – you know, the luckiest thing that can happen to you is to be born of the right parents in the right place at the right time. So, yes, all that's uh, part of what I count as a uh, a component of a person's good fortune in life. Yeah, if you're born uh, in a tough environment, you can still succeed, and you should try. Uh, and and many people do succeed, but but it's much much more difficult to succeed if you come from a, an environment where uh, there are people battling one another day and night, and there's not enough to eat. Yeah. Did in your research have you noticed? Is there a difference between um, you know? Are some people more luckier than others or is luck just a, a random percentage that we all experience and or and those that feel like they're luckier just are looking for more luck you know i think if you're alert and and uh focused you're much more likely to spot an opportunity that comes along there's been some research in england showing that people differ a lot in their attitudes about how lucky they are the people who think they're lucky those people are actually more likely to spot opportunities when mm. they're given tests. Uh, you know, you, you get a prize if you know something, uh, and 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 they those people really do uh, spot the opportunities more effectively than the people who think of themselves as unlucky. So yeah, partly it's an attitude, but but in the end, uh, why do people have that attitude rather than a different a- attitude? I think you know you're. Your temperament is is a complicated thing. It's a it's a product of your genes and your upbringing and and the people you meet. You know, so I, if if you get a good temperament in life, that, you're pretty lucky in the end. Well, and isn't that interesting? Talk about randomness. I mean, the genetic random genetic roll of the dice that we all get to pick up our health situation. I mean, even your heart condition probably had some genetic component as well. And that was a yeah. random just roll of the die. Right. Yep. And I, the experiments that psychologists have done, they, they will put people in situations where they get into a, a little bit of difficulty and then somebody comes along and offers to, to help them out of the jam that they're in. Uh, they, they reliably uh, show that people who have that experience feel grateful for the help they got. But then they're given a chance in a in an unrelated uh, setting to to help a person, a perfect stranger. The people who feel grateful are much more likely to help somebody else in distress mm. uh, and and to donate to a charity that that that, uh, that they might not have donated to. So, feeling gratitude uh, is just kind of a, a the psychologists are learning. It's it's kind of a magic elixir. You, you're happier when you feel grateful. Uh, your social relationships go more smoothly. Other people like you more when, when you're experiencing gratitude. You're, you're healthier. You sleep better. Uh, so usually in economics, the, the, the things we have that we value are scarce. You have to husband them. But if you can allow yourself to experience gratitude more readily, but there's no scarcity there. It seems to feed on itself and and, and only generate benefits, no cost. Hmm. Does does uh, feeling gratitude, did, have you found in any of the research, does it matter if you attribute your your blessings in life 
to a higher power versus just to luck? Is there a difference between those that ascribe it to uh, you know, intervention from a higher power versus just random luck? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that question. The psychological research that's been done where, where they, the researchers induce gratitude in subjects, uh, uh, none, of, none of that research that I've, I'm familiar with has made any reference to uh, higher powers. Yeah. It, it's, just a, it's just a circumstantial manipulation that the researchers do. And it's, and it's, about, uh, it's about gratitude, though, really. It's, do you sense yeah, it's really gratitude. gratitude? You can, you can be gratitude grateful for any any of a variety of reasons so I, I would not expect that if you feel grateful to a higher power that would be any less effective than yeah. feeling grateful for any other reason yeah it's um because again there's so many there's so many that are that see the luck in their life and and they feel blessed and use the word blessed and um, right, but but really, I guess the bigger point too is whether you call it luck or grace or blessings, seeing it as not you, but just some, kind of the randomness of life, may set you up uh, to be a more giving, caring, charitable person. Uh, Robert, let's take a break. Come back and continue this discussion with you. The luck of success, your and and your book. Um, what is it? What is it that drives us to this? Uh, gratitude in our hearts for what we've been given. Is it about you and all that you've done? Or is your success in life coming really just from the fact that you are lucky, you are blessed? We'll take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are speaking with Dr. Robert H. Frank, uh, an economics professor at Cornell University and author of the book Success and Luck, Good Fortune and the Myth of Meritocracy. He's here today teaching us that uh, if you see your life as something that you've earned, that you're a self-made person versus seeing it that you've been blessed or lucky, you've, uh, you, you know, you struck luck, um, then it might impact and it does impact how you are willing to give back to the community and to the world. So uh, this paradigm, um, it's important. It's important to see how you evaluate your own personal success or not. Dr. Frank, thank you again for being with us. Yes, it's it's really uh, fun to talk to you, Matt. Is this? I, I want to yeah clarify. I want to say that uh, you you don't want to downplay the importance of hard work and developing skills. Right. I mean, there there are very few people who succeed who don't work hard. The the important thing for people to try to remember though is that there are lots of people who do work hard and who are quite skillful who never achieve any real material success. And I guess that that is the big scale. That's the determinant is 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 uh, kind of economic success is really what we're looking at. Yeah, I think the book is focused mainly on you know who who are the big winners in material terms. You know these markets are very competitive. The the ones that bestow the biggest rewards that society has to offer. And the people who win in those markets are almost always really talented. They work long hours. They're, they're incredibly deserving in that sense. But uh, 
what we don't see is all the people who tried and didn't succeed uh, on nearly as grand a scale. Those people oftentimes are better than the ones who succeeded. It's just a couple of chance breaks along the way that made the difference between the ones who made it and the ones who didn't. What do you um, and what impact does this kind of winner take all market have on a lot of this? Because it, it does seem that there's a disproportionate amount of people. Uh, maybe the 1% or the half a percent now that own so much more than everyone else, are they just more lucky? <laughs> or how does how does the market you know itself impact it? What's happened is that uh, technology lets uh, the person who's really good at something serve a much broader swath of the market now than ever before. So if you're the if you're the best storyteller, uh, you can you can tell stories for the whole world. The internet puts your your content in front of everybody. Uh, it used to be you'd be the best storyteller in the village, uh, and that was good enough. You had you had an audience. You didn't get a spectacular payday from that. But if you're the best storyteller now, you can serve the entire world market, and 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 some version of that story repeats itself in almost every domain. So, so now the the contest is to see who who can be anointed at the best of whatever narrow thing uh, they're doing. That person gets a huge reward. The ones who are uh, right uh, bunched up together with that person in terms of talent and effort, uh, the the one who's a little bit better than he is may not be as lucky as the one that had the the good fortune to end up in the winner's circle mm. in that race. So, yeah, I think to look look at it as an inevitable consequence of the fact that you worked hard and you were smart, that's not the way to think about it. Uh, you worked hard, you were smart, and you were lucky is really the, the way to parse it. Yeah. What do you say to the person, you know, at the dinner party that – that that doesn't believe in luck, you know, believes it was all up to them. They made it all happen. Yeah. What would you say to them as as the person that's written the book and researched it? You know, there there may be a kind of an odd adaptiveness to look at the world that way. You know, I think if you're if you think of yourself as as the captain of your own fate, maybe you're more uh, psychologically equipped to deal with the challenges that you're going to confront out there along the path to a, a successful outcome. So, so, you know, I, I wouldn't want to discourage people from thinking that it's all up to them, but yeah. I, I think once, once you've made it, that's when it's really important to reflect and, and, and acknowledge that it wasn't just all up to you. You were born in a, in a place where you had an opportunity to su- succeed Something bad didn't happen to you along the way. I mean, there are all these things that it would be useful for you to remember once you've succeeded. Maybe before you succeed, mm. uh, uh, sure, go ahead. I yeah, think it's about you. you. Yeah, work as hard <laughs> as you can, do everything you can. But you're saying when you succeed, make sure you look back at the at truly the, the, the luck, the blessings, the, the many things that contributed right. to your success. And I guess that then turns you more outward, huh? It turns you more toward being a, a better member of community to giving back to community. That makes you more into the kind of person that, that we would want to spend time with. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> the guy who thinks he did it all by himself, you know, that, you don't want to have dinner with that guy. No. No. And... Um, I mean, remember there was the whole big uh, issue a few years ago with President Obama when 
he was talking to the business leaders and saying, you didn't build that. You know, you use the roads of our government. You use the, you know, the brain power of our population. And he was trying to right. – but there was such backlash about how dare the government say that, you know, they're the bringer of luck. Do you see that government does bring or cost people luck? Sure. sure. The, the institutions we have are absolutely essential if you're going to start a business and hope to – to make money off of it, if you didn't have the courts and the police and the roads and the schools, you, you couldn't even begin to think about doing that. Uh, he, he did have a bad choice of words, that you didn't build yeah. that phrase, really did provoke people. But what I've found, Matt, is that when you talk to successful people, it's, it's generally not a, a good idea to remind them that they've been lucky. That seems to kindle a defensive reaction hmm. in them. So true. Instead, try this. Uh, ask your successful friends if they can think of an example or any examples of lucky breaks they enjoyed along the way. Uh, they don't seem to be angry or, or become defensive when you ask them that question. You can see that they take an immediate interest in thinking about it. Their eyes light up when they can think of an example, and they're, they're happy to relate it to you. And when they, they relate it, that kindles the memory of another example. They tell you about that, too. And before long, they're, they're asking, why aren't we investing in this or that to help other people get a chance to make it? Hmm. So it, re it really matters how you have the conversation. I, I, I wish President Obama had had a chance to reflect on that before he gave that speech yeah. because it was an important speech, but it didn't have the effect that I think he wanted it to have. Well, and, and it, it seems like we always try to dichotomize an either-or every one of these arguments, but what I'm hearing you say is that there's a big and here, and we work hard, and the the government created conditions that could help you succeed, and right. you struck gold because you hit luck, and um, and – you know, you're smart. I mean, these can all go together. Yep. Everything has to go right for you to be a big winner in, in the competitive world that we're in now. And and you can do almost everything right and still not make it. Uh, and so if you do make it, just just realize that except for this or that. Brian Cranston, uh, the, the star of Breaking Bad, uh, yeah. was somebody I'd never heard of before he got that role. There were two other actors offered the part before he got it. Brian, Brian Cranston uh, would never have been on my radar screen ever, but now he's the most famous actor in his slice of the demographic in, in the world. Yeah, isn't that Everybody true? Everybody wants him. Does he was, uh, there, he, there's, it was the dad and Malcolm in the middle? Exactly, exactly. There seems to be this uh, this um, underlying lesson that if I if I will invoke that some of my life is inherently lucky, fortuitous, blessed. Um, there's also, it almost breeds a humility that it just yeah. as easily could have gone another way. Yes. And, and what an attractive quality that is in people. Yeah. You know, the, we, we don't really admire the, the person who thinks it was just all his own doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. Now, as we wrap up, Robert, we have about a minute left. What would you What would you say to us to teach our? What should we teach our children? How do we teach our, our children about luck? What What I I tell students who ask me for advice of that sort, I say, 
uh, try to re- try to remember if there was ever anything you did that made you feel completely absorbed. Uh, the state that psychologists call flow. Yeah. You know, you're not conscious of the passage of time. Try to find a job that enables you to experience that state. Because if you do, then you're going to get wrapped up in it. You're going to become an expert at it uh, without any of the suffering and effort that it usually takes to become an expert at something it takes thousands of hard, hard hours of practice to get good at something. But if you love the thing you're doing, then you'll get to be an expert at it. Maybe, uh, given the technology we have now, even if not very many people care about whatever this thing is, you'll be able to supply enough people with what you do to make money. But even if not, you're going to be pretty happy. You're going to be working all day at something you really enjoy doing. Yeah, in a state of flow. Dr. Robert H. Frank, thank you so much for your time. Again, a professor of management and economics at Cornell University and the author of Success and Luck, Good Fortune and the Myth of Meritocracy. Ah, Good to be lucky, isn't it? And uh, whether you call it luck or blessed... We've all got a little taste of it, a little touch of it. We'll take a break. When we come back, our own McKenna Baus will be joining us to do a little mind bender for us. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be a little luckier and a little more blessed. Stick with us. Welcome to her house. She is McKenna Baus. She is here to break down things you didn't know now. Welcome back, friends. In the studio with us is our own producer, McKenna Baus. Baus in the house, and she's she always brings us a little mind bender. Uh, different ways to look at the same old arguments. Mm-hmm. Today we're talking global warming. Yeah. What a how who could have a an argument about global warming? Well, how about it's everybody. Everybody, right? It's a big hot button issue, and most of the dialogue um, in terms that surrounds it is in the sense of how can we cut greenhouse gas emissions you know cutting using less oil putting less co2 into the atmosphere it all sort of focuses there and that's where a lot of hang-ups sort of enter the issue because people are saying well these alternative fuel sources are too expensive you know we don't have the tech to become you know use enough energy from other places than just oil it's not feasible right and so we just end up continually not doing anything about the issue. But what is sort of entering the conversation now is the idea of instead of trying to cut our emissions right now, why don't we look at other ways to mitigate the problem? Sort of instead of treating the cause, what are at least some Band-Aid fixes we can put hmm. on the symptoms? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, for example, what? So what, there's a couple different ones. Some of it is the idea of cooling the planet by shooting a bunch of different aerosols into the atmosphere, sort of creating this barrier. Oh, interesting. Okay. Or you spray saline mist into clouds, which makes them more white, and then that makes them reflect more sunlight. Away which, from away the planet. Away from the planet, keeping the earth cooler. Things like that. Interesting. Yeah. And so it's- well, Why don't we just all pour a cup of ice- into the ocean. I think that's a that's a good option. <laughs> yeah. That's just my little simple way of thinking about there it. There you go. That's, you know, anything we can all do. Yeah, because we do have a hard time getting people to stop polluting. Mm-hmm. But maybe there are more aggressive ways to to warm the planet. Yeah. And without s- creating more pollution. Exactly. And so what we can do is 
there there's scientists are saying we need to really look into these as more options and it's called geoengineering hmm. and it's sort of one of those things that's existed a lot in sci-fi up until this point but people are like well we're not making any progress right. stopping the problem so you know let's try and do something else in the meantime um but you know, it sounds like, wow, this sounds great. It's really cheap. Yeah. It only takes – costs about $5 billion a year um, and you for can, a country you could, to do If it. everybody could donate to these higher tech prov- or, uh, other methods, that might be easier than retrofitting your entire economy. Exactly. Yes. And so like even relatively less financially secure nations would be able to afford this. So like, wow, it's cheap. Uh-huh. You know, we don't have to change our current behavior. What could go wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, there, but there are some concerns that still exist. There's the issues of, well, as soon as we stop, all of a sudden, all that CO2 that we've been still pumping in becomes an even bigger problem. So right. it really is only a good option if we're using it as a thing to buy us time. Yeah, stopgap. Exactly. That, and meanwhile, because think about it, a lot of the economic issue, I mean, it, it is about economics. Mm-hmm. How do you retrofit China to burn cleaner energy? Without destroying China. Yeah. And I mean, same with the U.S., uh, the only country. I mean, first, you know, polluter is China followed right behind by yeah. the U.S. And per capita, the U.S. is actually a lot, right. lot worse. Um, but there's also some other concerns, too. A lot of people look at it the way they look at GMOs in the sense of like, you're messing with nature. Mm-hmm. Not a good idea. Also, one country, you know, implements it here. Well, Air blows this stuff. And so even if you can't isolate it to one area, it's going to affect the whole world if it happens. And there's some trade-offs because it might, you know, cool down the earth as a whole. Too much. Now we've overdone it. Yeah. Well, it may, you know, be good there, but it might freeze up some Russian ports. And so they lose some ports and the monsoon season in India gets messed up and there may be a drought in the Midwest. it's so complicated. And so you, you have to be able to really work with all the countries to say, are we willing to work together mm-hmm. and all take some losses in some areas to get this, you know, greater good. And if a country went ahead and did this without the, you know, consensus of all these other nations, you know, there's theorists out there who say, you know, that could be the grounds for nuclear oh, war. Yeah. There, yeah, there we go. Now so, we're going to start a whole – but by the way, what would happen with a little nuclear war? That would change the whole it system would, It would cool well. things down real fast. <laughs> nuclear <laughs> winter. Cow. It so would. McKenna Baus, thanks for bre- bending our minds the way you do. Um, It's all about learning, folks. That's why we're here, to help you uh, see the good in the world. We'll take a break. Be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's the House of Bows. It's the House of Bows. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I probably, I just feel like I need to give you some advice. It's going to be good advice, of course. So, you ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump. Uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we, I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, 
from businessinsider.com about just certain things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a, um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits. Bill Marler put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Mm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more... With the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got you got to anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them, do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. Why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than thirty bacterial outbreaks primarily salmonella and E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. That seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads it's to so the hospital. so good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got you got to get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out. Watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah, okay? It also saves your life. It it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. So don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. And we're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow, at home, you need a life, not to be rude. 
you need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. Out of Issaquah, Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really... Did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No, it's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it, but yeah. that's... It, it sounded right. It sounded like it? a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce probably, some clam and linguine meal. Mmm, sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has... Did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No, no. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know, just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, They were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart, she just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante, Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then asked for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. (laughs) She may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something you can't always do when you find something strange in your meal. You know, hey, I found some hair. It's just weird to put hair on a necklace. Make make it into a necklace. No, thanks. I'm going to be in the restroom for a minute. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. When you talk about morality, the reason we do what we do and why we do it, it's and we don't consciously sit there and say, I will now go try to look better by being morally superior to everybody. But we all know somebody that has to tell us when we're doing something wrong. Or I had friends growing up in high school that if I, I would make a joke that they would laugh at, but then they'd be like, oh, Matt, shouldn't say that. And it it was hilarious. That's why they were laughing. And they were like, man, what's wrong with me? Why, why do I say that? Because I must be such a misfit. Anyway, morality. And one of the things I talk a lot about when I work with my clients is we, we there's a thing called logical force. Okay, so logical force is when we make a decision based on logic, not morality. For example, um, if you have a friend that called you a name or embarrassed you at, a, at an event, it would be logical that you don't talk to her, I guess, for a week. Ignore her. Ben does this all the time with the producers around him. It's very effective. Well, okay. And um, we're talking against it now, so you wouldn't want to probably argue that it's effective. I just need to put that in. Okay. Sorry. So, so you're justified, right? Because you're doing something that is right. If you went and interviewed your friends, nine out of your ten friends, if you had ten friends, Ben, nine out of ten of them would say, yeah, I'd be mad too, and I would ignore Stacy. 
I'd ignore her because that was totally rude. The problem is, even if it's even if it's logical for you to be mad, even if it's uh, and you can see this in our political world, even if it makes good political sense for you to put someone down, for you to destroy someone's career or you know credibility. It, just because it is logical and it it logically can be justified, it doesn't make it moral, right? Your morals, your moral value system, and your logic system don't all they don't go together. Because many times, the most moral thing you can do when you see something that's been done wrong, like let's go to the story of the guy that killed the lion. Um, I guess you could gang up and jump in and send it to everyone you know and show how moral you are. Or you could just shut your flapper and go make a donation to preserving animals, right? But no one would know about that. So what's the point? What's the point? Why would I do something that nobody knows about? I guess because it's moral. So when I think of a moral person, I think of a Gandhi uh, a Buddha, Mother Teresa, these people didn't promote their actions. They just acted. I think you're being naive, Matt. <laughs> Is that – are you trying to show – are you trying to get me mad? So I would – No, I'm trying to be logical. Crush your larynx. Um, Got to look after yourself in this world. See, again, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Um, that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. All of a sudden – it's logical to defend yourself. You feel like you have to defend yourself. Even the guy that was going to rush the stage, he was making a good point. Donald Trump's a bully, so all I wanted to do was just take the – I just wanted to take his his speaker away, his pulpit away. I wanted to get rid of his stand. I didn't want to let him have his voice anymore. Logical. Logical. Not so logical when you think of the fact that there was tens of thousands of people there that would have stopped him. Uh, 12 or so, he said, you know, Secret Service people that could have killed him or killed someone else trying to stop him. Not super logical, but he feels like he has moral authority to do that. I guess one of the problems we run into in our society is we think we have a right and that right means we have no responsibility. We have a right to say what we need to say, to use our voice, to be mad and to take a stand and even charge the stage. We have a right to do this. But there's also a responsibility. Do you know how bad that could have gone? Secret Service that have weapons. This guy could have either been killed or other people harmed or injured or Donald could have had a heart attack. Things could have happened. There's a responsibility that comes along with all of this. So just because you have a moral right or a right, logical right, doesn't mean it's going to be moral and healthy for you. And remember, check your own gut. If Why do you need to post certain things? Look at what you're posting. If you're somebody that is constantly posting political things or constantly having to beat up the latest issue morally, um, why are we doing that? Ask yourself, what does what do I gain by being this type of person? In the end, you're probably not actually improving your moral system. In the end, your moral system is more between you, your God, you and your people around you, you and the followers that respect you and trust you. That's where your moral system creates strength, not in the masses necessarily. Unless you're somebody that is always in the masses, uh, 
with people following you, I'd keep your moral compass fine-tuned to the people around you. Anyway, uh, closest to you, by the way. We'll take a break. More of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, one of the uh, fun things that I've been learning a lot about lately is this idea called high sensitive, highly sensitive people. And highly sensitive isn't like what Jeff thought it meant, which just meant he cries a lot. It's not that, Jeff. No, it's not that. High sensitivity is... um... Okay. You're okay, Jeff. Come on, pal. Come on, buddy. There you go. Uh, I just uh, gave him some sausage in some thick casing so he doesn't break it when he falls. Um, Highly sensitive people are about 20 percent of the population. There's a book out called The Highly Sensitive Person by a woman named Elaine Aaron. And she believes that um, what this sensitivity may be is a precursor to people that have anxiety. So as we talk uh, with people that are anxious – a lot of times they end up um, – they end up – if you ask them, what is it that makes you so anxious, they can't explain it. They just know they get really upset. They get really angry. They get really frustrated. Um, they – you know, there's just a point where they've had it. And we see it a lot in our children where we think, holy cow, oh boy, we, you know, we crossed that point of no return because we, we brought our kids home too late and now they're throwing fits and having problems and all of these things. But one of the things uh, to, to really be thinking about is if you notice that smells bother you, that light bothers you, that um, heat bothers you, like a lot, not just a little, but like you can't sit there and go to the beach because you hate the texture of the ground or you, you hate the sweat rolling down your back, then you may be a highly sensitive person. And you don't – and what that ends up doing is it it ends up making you feel like you're losing your mind, right? Like you're going crazy. Why is it that when I have to go grocery shopping, I am so frustrated by the time I'm done? Don't think you're crazy. You might just be starting to get overwhelmed because you're picking up so much data as you go shopping. Usually people that are high sensitives get cranky because they haven't eaten uh, or they get – when they're tired, it it makes life even worse for them. So just know – that if, if all of a sudden the little things tend to bother you, that little tiny pebble in your shoe, you are the person that no matter what, you have to stop the minute it's there. If the temperature is irritating, if it's too bright when you go outside and you notice that, if you tend to get a lot of headaches, if you feel um, like you tend to react pretty quickly to things, don't despair. Just go online and start looking up the words, the highly sensitive person. And, and uh, again, the book is by Elaine Aaron, the highly sensitive person. Um, and go see, just to take a test. There's a little quiz she has on her um, on her website, and you can come. Uh, you, you can then evaluate if you're a highly sensitive person, and then all of a sudden, it might explain why you feel a little more anxious about doing certain things, going in certain crowds. Anyway, interesting learnings. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back when we come back. Diane Hamilton will be joining us, talking about her book, The Zen of You and Me. Stick with us.
whether it's a coworker, a family member, or a stranger, sometimes we allow others to rattle and upset us. But the people who get under your skin the most can, in fact, be your greatest teachers. Our next guest argues it's not a matter of overlooking differences, as is often thought, but of regarding those dif- those difficult aspects of the relationship with curiosity, compassion for those uh, very differences are the path to a deeper connection, a more profound connection. Joining us uh, is mediator and author Diane Musho-Hamilton. She joins us today to talk about her book, The Zen of You and Me, A Guide to Getting Along with Just About Anyone. And Diane's been on the show before. Diane, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure, Matt. I'm I, happy to be here. I, I love what you're doing. I've, I, I, we're in the same city, and I hear a lot about your great uh, mediation and dialogue work. So when I saw this book, I thought, okay, we got to... We got to bring on Diane and let her teach us about the Zen of you and me. Um, now, talk. I mean, Zen, it, Buddhism. Talk about this is a big. This is a big movement in the world. A lot of people are are catching the power of Zen. Try to explain it to just the average person. Well, at the at the heart of Zen practice is really um, meditation, and mindfulness meditation is kind of all the rage, as you're pointing out, just because people. And uh, science itself is really starting to see the benefits of meditation to our well-being. I mean, it really helps lower levels of stress. It improves our powers of concentration. It opens us up to greater states of happiness. And so I think uh, people are starting to see that all of us, particularly this time with so much speed of mind and our devices and technology and media, that we all need time to just quiet down and, and in a certain way, just give our nervous system a rest. Oh, so so meditation is at the heart of Zen. And you're saying, I mean, you're a practitioner. You're not, you're you you're a practitioner, not just of Zen and um, but of of mediation, of uh, facilitation, and, and helping mm-hmm. people communicate. Um, mm-hmm. So so, do you actually? How do you incorporate this kind of Zen spiritual state into a daily practice of communicating and relating? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, mediation and meditation have the same root. And both those processes, both the practice of meditation, of sitting down, quieting the body, quieting the mind, we're kind of creating um, unity. You know, because we're very divided in our lives. You know, we're thinking this while we're doing that and we're going here while we're preparing to go there. So when we sit down and quiet down, we just become more integrated and more whole. And when we're more whole and we're functioning with that kind of, um, uh, what's the word, like um, coherence is a good word. When we function with that kind of coherence, um, life is just simpler and it's easier. Well, uh, mediation is the same thing. We take parties that are disputing who have disagreements, who are divided, and then they come together and we work to um, bring people into agreement and to bring people to shared understanding. And so basically what I'm trying to do with my book is I'm trying to show people how you can you can learn to bring um, the the relationships that you're engaged with into more coherence. And we do that by including the differences not by getting rid of them. That's mm. the important point. Yeah. Is that a kind of a universal problem or paradigm that we have as as humans is to kind of dichotomize everything? It seems like we put everything at odds with each other mm-hmm. when in reality, 
paradox can exist and it can all go together. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the one of the interesting things that we're starting to learn about, of course, is the evolution of the brain. And we know that, that our prefrontal cortex, which came much later in our evolution and allows us to think and to use language, the, the, very, the very capacity to think about something or to compare <clears throat> this to that means that we, it's our, our analytic mind uh, that helps us, you know, sort of make discriminations. But when we make those discriminations, lots of times we have like really powerful value judgments. So this is good and that's bad. I like this. I don't like that. I'm right, you're wrong, so that we kind of proceed through life creating much more division than maybe sometimes we're aware of. Mm. And division, that one of the things I talk about is that the, the body registers unity or sameness or coherence differently than it registers difference. So when we're in a state of relaxation and we feel kind of one with our environment and we feel like we belong and there's coherence, you know, we probably have, you know, like maybe a little bit of oxytocin in the brain, some serotonin or dopamine, more feel-good chemicals. But when differences arise, it's very wired into our um, our old fight-or-flight. And so what we get is we get a cocktail of stress hormones. So as soon as we sense difference, we start to experience adrenaline. If that difference persists and it starts to become perceived as a threat, then we're going to feel cortisol in the body. So whenever a difference arises, we don't like how it feels because our body is preparing Hmm. us to kind of defend ourselves. So we have to kind of start to learn about that. Otherwise, we just react to the feeling and either withdraw or end up in a fight. So it really takes a lot of skill to start to realize, oh, if I'm going to hear about your differences, I have to tolerate these different sensations in my body. And you're saying that's a learned behavior. Yeah, totally learned behavior, because the old evolution is basically telling us to move away from difference. We were more likely to be hurt by, you know, another unfamiliar human being than a predator in nature in our history. So we're really, really sensitive to difference. And as you can see, all you have to do is look at the political climate right now. There's a lot going on around. I mean, a lot of the the problems that we have are related to religious differences or cultural differences. And, you know, so there's this big dialogue back and forth about people who want to kind of tolerate more difference and other people who are saying, no, we need to put boundaries up and keep the difference away. It's uh, it's such a true thing. I've never thought of it as the chemistry. It's basically this, this kind of automatic chemistry yeah. of – of the difference that we see as a threat, and then I guess our own internal interpretation mm-hmm. of that, we we might then go off on other fears we have, other threats it could be, that, and it seems more personal to us. Yeah, that's right. It, it's sort of like it's, it's a little bit of like a perpet, perpetual kind of collapse in a way, because what happens is that there's a feedback loop, so I have a thought, oh, there's a difference, and then that heightens my adrenaline and my defensive kind of fight-or-flight system, and then that experience of the fight-or-flight reinforces this doesn't feel good to me, something must be wrong, I need to defend myself, and so the body and mind start getting into a loop with each other. So you have to kind of, you have to quiet the mind with the thoughts, and then you have to, like, use your breath and, like, you know, stay present to what's going on so that you don't just end up in that, you know, perpetual response. Hmm. And... Um, I mean, it works. We know this works, maybe not in kind of the meditative approach, but we like um, I have a brother-in-law that is a, is a 
doctor and performs mm-hmm. a lot of procedures on people. But when he was mm-hmm. 16 years old and he went, went in a procedure with his father and his father, it's a weird story, but squirted some blood on him, he passed mm-hmm. out. He had a physiological mm-hmm. response to a situation. And now that same boy, man now, can go in and do incredible surgeries with blood everywhere. Um, yeah. So I, yeah. I guess we, we can uh, we can adjust our brains to do this. I guess my concern, not concern, but the weird thing is it's the timing of it. Like, it seems like meditation takes so much time. But Mm -hmm. but when my wife starts calling me out on something, my fight Mm -hmm. or flight amygdala wants to crush her immediately. Well, totally. So how do we get the Zen into the moment? Mm -hmm. Is that just from our history or is, is it our past that becomes present? How does that work? Well, I think I think that the fact that we're talking about it and we notice it is sort of the first step, like for your listeners, just to say that, you know, you have a particular response to conflict or to difference. You might be an avoider. You might be a person who tries to smooth it out and make it better. You might be a fighter. But that's basically an evolutionary response to a, an old um, signaling function in your brain. And that you're, you, you have the capacity to bring your attention into the moment which is the same as meditation. You bring your attention to the here and now. You stay present. And as you learn to do that, you can actually start to create new patterns of response. Now, you're absolutely right that it takes time. I mean, these things are so uh, hardwired. And, 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 you know, the beautiful thing about nature is these responses are immediate. They're quick. It's like we react right away. But it's not really what you do. It's just what you do next in the next moment. Can you find a way to stay present? Can you find a way to, to calm yourself? Can you find a way to remember, oh, there might be something about this difference that's actually good or interesting, and I don't necessarily have to uh, protect myself. I don't necessarily have to prevail. There might be a way I could even be curious. You know, and mm-hmm. once we once we start to see that happening, all of a sudden we're in a we're in a different possibility. And 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 uh, learn to sit in the space. That's what I learned as a mediator is when people hate each because I had taught c- communication skills and conflict resolution skills for years, and then when I became a mediator and actually had to sit in the space of the tension. It's a whole different yeah. ball game than all these theories, right? Now all of a it's sudden It's a whole different ball game because your body is completely evolved to want to get you out of the right, room. Right. Right. And it doesn't matter if it's your fight or somebody else's, it's the same. And you know? but it's amazing, Diane, after days and years of it, um you don't even it doesn't even scare me. Like it doesn't even it's now you can just it, it's actually you know, you're like the surgeon who uh-huh. tolerate blood now. Yeah. And there's a weird it. piece in that same tense space. And, and I guess it's because I've changed. Yeah. And you know yourself better and you've gotten used to what those feeling states are like. And, you know, there's a possibility of people working it out. And you, you've had enough experience now that, you know, there's a good outcome that's available. When we first start doing this, we've never had good experiences with people working it through. So we just tend to go into avoidance modes. But what, what we're learning is humans are learning how to actually meet each other in their differences and work them through or learn how to live with them without just simply um, pushing them away. Love it. You know what? Let's take a break, Diane. We'll come back. I want to get into some of the the principles while we're in that space, how we remain curious. You have some the, – the book is it's wonderful because it's, it's small, it's handy, and it's very direct to the principle. So we'll come back more with Diane Hamilton and her book, The Zen of You and Me. 
a guide to getting along with just about everyone. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joined on the line by Diane uh, Musho Hamilton. She's a gifted facilitator, mediator, spiritual teacher, author of the book, The Zen of You and Me, a guide to getting along with just about anyone. Diane, thank you again for being with us. My pleasure, Matt. So do you believe, um, and I mean, I do, um, do you believe that you really could find a way to get along with just about anyone? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, think so. It may, maybe getting along just means accepting that at a really deep level that you can't really be very close to somebody or you can't necessarily go into business with someone, but you can kind of find it, find some peace in yourself with letting them be who they are. Yeah. And it's also, like you were saying, this is, uh, this is kind of your spiritual journey, right? Every human interaction is a journey really about you and in you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think in in my life, I I had a very feisty family, very expressive, loving, but also, you know, we would conflict a lot. And I think I I kind of just wanted to learn in life how I could maintain the authenticity and the passion of my family, but then be able to to transmute it so that we weren't, you know, getting into unnecessarily, uh, you know, moments of being alienated. It's like uh, I, w- I don't want the conformity where we, we all agree that we're never going to conflict because it doesn't feel very deep or very real. On the other hand, I also want a certain amount of peace and comfort. So that's really been my kind of lifelong quest is how to maintain the heart, the passion, the authenticity with the people I love and at the same time be able to, um, you know, really feel at home and like we love each other. Mm. I use uh, I talk about ego a lot in some of my work as well. Talk about mm-hmm. ego and how it divides us, and what is the ego? It's not we always just kind of think of it as you know being cocky or arrogant, but what what is mm-hmm. the ego? Well, the ego is really I mean it's it's spoken about you know in different ways, but but in the work that I do, the ego is really our self concept. It's the idea we have about ourselves. So um, you know it may be that. Uh, you know, I think of myself as a very neat and orderly person, and I keep getting feedback from my wife or my, I'm sorry, my husband or my partner that, you know, I'm sloppy, but my idea is that I'm neat. And so when I get this feedback that I'm, you know, that I'm actually not, then I, I feel defensive and I have to like defend my self-image. And so we go around protecting our self-image a lot of times, and that is a form of difference. The ego is a form of difference because it's really difficult for me to relax you know, my uh, perspective on myself. And so I'm often in very subtle ways defending my idea of who I am, when in fact, if I could just relax it and open to the fact that in some ways I'm neat and in some ways I'm not, then there, you know, there wouldn't be that division between me and my partner. Mm. And that's, I guess, the, the overarching goal of the ego is to be in control. And to maintain itself, absolutely, to maintain the idea of itself. You know, if if we think about athletics, you know, when you're, imagine for a moment that you're playing in the NBA, you know, mostly when you're in the the middle of a game, you're playing at such a high level, you can't be thinking about yourself. You just have to be executing. 
you know, if you make a great shot and there's a, a few minutes when you're headed to the other end of the floor, you can maybe have your moment of glory and think, oh, I did that really well. But mostly we can't perform at a high level when we have that self-orientation because it cuts us off from what's happening. Um, and yet we get into these habits of just like creating an image that then we spend all of our time defending and it's really a waste of energy. Fun way to think about it. Well, that's a great way to think about it. And so a lot of our, our, the minute I guess we're falling into this competitive nature, like Mm -hmm. even like LeBron James, when he's heading down the court, he's not thinking, I'm going to now competitively drive on my opponent. He's just naturally acting and reacting to the situation. And if he can feed his team and get a better shot, he'll do that. If he can, if he can use his teammate to help get a better shot for himself, he'll do that. You're saying the minute though we start getting into our own concepts and, and, and almost uh, becoming more competitive, being more offended, um, having yeah. these very personal experiences, you've probably drifted back into the ego. Yeah, and we're, we're no longer in the game. We're yeah. in an idea we have about ourselves, and we're using our life force and our energy to defend really just a kind of an image and a mirage when really we could extend our, our, our attention outward and, and be much more effective. Isn't that and powerful? We, we all know what it's like. We, we know what it's like to be in contact with people that spend a lot of energy substantiating their egos and people who are relatively free of it. Yeah. And it's a different, it's a, it's a different experience for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's an, it's an interesting way to say it, substantiating their ego, but making mm-hmm. it, uh, adding to its substance. So I guess this is what a lot of the Zen uh, leaders or gurus would say is that your goal is to become... Um, they call it mindful, but really mm-hmm. mindless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just. The, I mean, we need we need enough ego to, uh, you know, care about our well being and our hygiene and stay focused around our life purpose. Just enough to maintain ourselves, but beyond that, it really is. It really uh, sucks life from us. Boy, it does. And um, give us some other principles. What are some things we should be doing just as we engage, like maybe as we know we're going to grandma and grandpa's house and Uncle Larry's going to be there, who we think is this <laughs> egomaniacal guy that's always making me feel less than. What do I do right. there? How do I, how do I, what are some principles I could remember as I go into that situation? Well, I mean, particularly as it pertains to family, I think the first thing is really just to kind of clarify, clarify our, our intention. And even the people that we don't get along with very well, just remember that there's a way that we can be for each other. You know, that I can be for Uncle Larry, even if I can't be in a long conversation with him, I can basically find a way to, you know, wish him the best. So I think that intention makes a big difference. And then one of the most important communication skills, and I'm sure you teach about this all the time, Matt, is listening. Yeah. Because being able to listen, we give other people the experience that they've been heard and that they're valued. And when you bring listening skills to a situation and you actually empty yourself, hear what someone else has to say, you don't confuse listening with agreement, but you just are generous to give your attention to someone else's perspective, that has a very soothing impact on the environment. Yeah. And and another way of saying it is you're willing to kind of become the same as that person for a few minutes. Mm. And yeah, so that would be so being having a clear intention, using your listening skills and being respectful of other people's points of view, and then occasionally taking the risk to just say, is it okay if I express my point of view for a few minutes? 
and then being willing to say what's really true for you. And if there's a difference, just letting that difference be okay. We don't have to see the world the same way. Mm-hmm. And I can, yeah, I can still, I can, I don't have to agree with everything you mm-hmm. you think. I I can still have my intent of being one with you, just yeah, but precisely. different. Yeah. yeah, that's right. One and different. That's really, it's like, I, I like to tell my students sometimes, you think of it this way, humans develop through difference. So, you know, you're born into a family and you're the same as your family. And when you get to be 13 or 14 years old, suddenly, you know, you're finding yourself being different. Or if you're a parent who's listening to this, you'll notice that your teenagers now don't stand next to you on the street corner. They stand mm-hmm. two or three pe- feet away. That's the healthy process of differentiation. So they're becoming autonomous, differentiated um, people. And it's hard on parents because we love that togetherness so much, but we have to see that it's a healthy process. And then if our kids keep developing, pretty soon they do what's called reintegration, where they come back towards the family, but now it's a little more complex because they're the same and they're different. They're no longer just the same as the family, nor are they completely different, but they're both functioning in this sameness and in this difference. And that's a, a healthier, more complex state. That is so true. And we, we're so mad that they keep trying to not want to be with us. And then when yeah. they come back, we keep pretending like they are exactly the same, even though not. they aren't. And that's so no. frustrating for them. Right. And that's healthy human development. Yeah. That's what that is. Yeah. That's just, that's just, yeah, that's normal. Um, what would you, one of the things uh, I, I know that is a big part of uh, meditation and, and this is it's just a word but the word I know has such profound meaning and I think with your background you're, you'd be the perfect teacher of it what is namaste uh, namaste is a is a I believe it's a Sanskrit word it comes from India and namaste is basically a greeting in which uh, your your essential nature or your divine nature that's not different we all come from the same source so when I say namaste, I'm recognizing that divine source in you is the same as in me. It's mm. a greeting where we're, where we're meeting each other in, in the sameness of our divinity. Which is, again, if we, if we can find any fellowship on the earth in each other, it's in that. Exactly. Yeah, it's not, we, we have to transcend our individual differences, we have to transcend our cultural differences, and we have to feel into that place in which we're ultimately the same. And, you know, people who are, who have kind of deep spiritual practices, this is not an unfamiliar thing. They understand this. That's powerful. And again, that's such a different spirit. And I think that spirit then changes the tone. It changes your intentions. It changes your curiosity about the other. Because everyone's just on their own journey. That's right. Absolutely. And there, there, there's a point in human development, if I, if I, speak a little bit more about healthy human development, where differences in in religion can feel threatening in the way that I've been talking about. But then we reach a point where we realize, oh, these are all just different expressions of the same um, source, so that we're no longer afraid of those differences, we're curious about them. So there's a moment where we actually become genuinely more tolerant of others. Now, people who are fundamentalists, and people who are jihadists, let's say, are not able to cope with the differences in others. Yeah. That's why they're, they're warring. But there's the people who can, you know, are, are, you could say they have more capacity for complexity. Love it. No, that's it. And that's, 
That's how, that's how we transcend humanity. We appreciate you. Diane Hamilton's her name. Go get the book, The Zen of You and Me, a guide to getting along with just about everyone. Go check out her website as well, dianemushohamilton.com. Great human being and a great, uh, just a great gift to this world. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Remember, this is the Matt Townsend Show, your guide on the side, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I love talking to people that are at the top of their field, right? The top of their game, like uh, Brian Tracy. I mean, some people are sitting there like, well, I don't like people that try to make it sound that simple. And, um, you know, you don't have to go chasing money. You don't have to go be in love with money. And But the reality is there are people, and if you've ever been around somebody, I just sat down with somebody yesterday that is running a huge company, multi-billion dollar company. And he, with thousands of employees and tens of thousands of employees, and it's it's interesting how organized he really is and how it all comes down to very basic principles in his mind in his in his head it really is about principles and i think that's all brian was teaching us is there's just certain principles that are going to lead to success you can argue against them if you want but it's hard to argue that companies that focus on sales make more sales I mean, if if all of a sudden the average uh, corporation is spending 25% of their workforce, 30% of their money on creating and generating cells, and, uh, you know, a little homegrown business is spending 10% on cells, wouldn't it make sense that the corporation's going to make more money? Right? That's not brain surgery. And yet, as a small business owner, it's hard to focus on sales if you don't love sales. I'd rather create content any day, but that's useless if no one's going to go sell the content. So if you want a company to succeed, you really need to do what works. How about just long-term thinking versus short-term thinking? Have you been so busy just living your life day in and day out that you didn't plan ahead for something down the road? Have you ever had a trip that you knew you were going to take in, you know, six months from now? And then you waited till three weeks before to get your passport? Oh, just long-term thinking, you know, it helps. It's not perfect, but it, it can certainly help. So anyway, it's, uh, it's just some basic information. Um, and, uh, but also, I think if you just look at, uh, like, Brian Tracy's success rate, it's pretty good. Pretty good. You, if you're selling millions and millions of books a year, you're doing, you're doing okay. Doesn't, make, doesn't mean it's all perfect and great, but he's living his principles. He is creating sales. He is an entrepreneur. He is looking long-term. If you're trying to grow a business, you probably ought to. 
grow some of those principles as well. But there might be more uh, other things we can be doing. Let me give you a few more that that will definitely impact your ability to to live better. We might actually need to go back into our lives and eliminate some things, right? Get rid of certain things. There's a listen to this story of a 90 year old woman. Um, from Michigan, decided to turn her cancer diagnosis into an excuse to travel across the United States. The woman named Norma is accompanied by her son, Tim, daughter-in-law, Ramey, and their poodle, Ringo. And they are out documenting their adventures via Facebook page, Driving Miss Norma. (laughs) Norma learned of her cancer within two weeks of her husband's death and told her son prior to the diagnosis that she had no interest in treatment. Her son and his wife then explained to the doctor they would be driving her around the country in her RV and ultimately receiving his blessing. As doctors, we see what cancer treatment looks like every day, he said. ICU, nursing homes, awful side effects, and honestly, there is no guarantee she will survive the initial surgery to remove the mass. You're doing exactly what I want to do in this situation. Have a fantastic trip, the doctor said. In August, the family upgraded their motor home to a larger 36-foot model and began their trip by traveling to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota before continuing through the country, visiting other landmarks, historical sites such as Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Ramey uh, told ABC News that in addition to seeing the sites and gaining more than 100,000 likes on her Facebook page, Norma's health seems to be improving. How cool is that? She's getting better, maybe, or at least feeling better. She's receiving the benefits of being different, doing something different. Notice she set a goal. She's figured out how the goal is going to work. What a great way. If, if you got if you got cancer and you got to deal with cancer, it sure sounds like a better way to do it. Now, um, I have put together in the past a project I call the Project of Elimination. There are certain things that keep us stuck. And um, I'm going to, as we do this little coach's corner, go through a bunch of different tools that you might want to just get rid of. Things you just need to declutter out of your head. Think of it as like a spring cleaning. You know, as as spring comes... Uh, and winter's done, it's time to clean out the house. Back in the day, remember, they'd bring out the rugs and they'd beat up their rugs to get all the dust out of them. It's time to spring clean. Let me give you a few things I'd suggest that you start to, to let go of. Number one, let go of the stories that don't serve you. How many times have we been telling stories that we really haven't even thought about But we use these phrases like, I'm not very good at that. Yeah, I don't do that. I'm not a math person. We might quickly dismiss something we do by saying, ah, it's just the way I am. Yeah, you know, I'm not, I don't like to hold the grandbabies. I I, I want them. I'm I'm a grandpa that'll play with them when they're older. Well, let go of that story and pick up your grandbaby. Get rid of the story. You don't have to be pegged by something you thought you were 30 years ago. It's not like somebody's going to say, Grandpa, do this math. So you you don't have to be bad at math anymore. You've got a brain. You can still add. 
Anyway, it's simple to just sit there and have a trite phrase that we use all of the time. But many of these phrases, they're not going to help you. They beat you up. They, they actually take away something. They could take away something like time with your kids or your grandkids. Yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah, hobbies, you know, I don't golf because it's a waste of time. Now, you don't have to go golf, but that's also a story because it could be really time well spent. Exercising, hanging out with friends, opening your mind up, meditating, wrapping your golf club around a tree, stuff like that. Another thing we need to let go of is the need to keep score. Let's just get very clear, folks. Life isn't fair. So if it's not fair, then there's probably no value in keeping score. (laughs) People are going to step on you. They're going to make mistakes. Someone's going to pull in front of you, and it is going to slow you down ten hundredths of a second. Yeah, it happens. Doesn't mean you need to chase them down and pull in front of them. The reason why it's not useful to keep score is because much of life is intangible anyway. The greatest benefits in life are intangible. They're not even... You can't mark it. You can't compare it. The joy you feel being with a grandchild, the joy you feel watching your child have a home run or hit a home run in a game, man, that's incredible. And why are we keeping score? It's not fair. At some point, people are going to step on your toes. They're going to do stupid stuff. This isn't a race. This is called life. So if you feel a need to keep score constantly, then guess what? You're going to pay for it. There's going to be problems for you. Another thing we need to let go of are what I call the overs and the unders. Every one of us tends to take extremes in our lives. We either go overboard or under, right? So we play way too hard and excessive in what we do. We play to kill for keeps. We play to dominate. And some of us just don't play. Think about your life. Where are you overboard? Well, I I collect figurines. I have 12,000 of them. Okay, it's a little over. Maybe you're a little overboard on that. Uh, You don't have to be a fanatic to believe in God. You don't have to go overboard or under. Yeah, I don't even go to church. You can actually go to church and just be there. Be there your way. Yeah, but then they'll ask me to pray, and then i got to pray. Well, you could say no. Overs and unders, we all do it. And sometimes it's over, you know, we're overconfident, uh, and some of us are really underconfident. We lack the confidence we need. Are there certain things that take you to an extreme? Are you doing any activity excessively? Do Do you overschedule your life? Do you overcommit to everything? Are you overly exhausted? Or do you, you know, have plenty of energy because you don't ever say yes to anything? And you don't ever step out of your comfort zone. We might want to look at that and let go of it. You might want to let go of what's not working. Sometimes in life, there's just time to let go of stuff that just isn't working. More of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us.
The New York Stock Exchange is a busy, complicated, fast environment with buyers and sellers exchanging stocks. This, as our guest uh, Stephen Pressman relates, is similar to a used car dealership. The stocks are sold by an intermediary similar to car dealers, and they can be good deals or not so good deals, and sometimes even a lemon will sneak in. But uh, today to talk about it and help us through the complexity of Wall Street is Dr. Stephen Pressman. He's a professor of economics at Colorado State University and an emeritus professor of economics and finance at Monmouth University. And we're honored to have you, Stephen. Thank you again for being back with us today. Uh, thank you so much for having me again. This is uh, this is to me a really I think important discussion. We we found an article that you put together about why Wall Street is like a used car lot, and what I'd love you to do for us, Stephen, is maybe just teach us how Wall Street works. Give us some insight because in the last election we heard all about Wall Street and and some of the speculating and and some of the speculative pricing, and a lot of us can't figure out how Snapchat makes so much money. Um, when they don't necessarily have necessarily revenue models yet. So help us understand what's going on with Wall Street. Well, uh, as I said in my article, Wall Street is basically a used car dealership. Uh, If you think of what a used car dealership is, somebody buys a new car and then they're ready for another car, and so they're going to trade in the old model. Um, And Wall Street is sort of like that. Most of the stocks... Almost all of the stocks that trade um, on Wall Street, there's a buyer, there's a seller, and the broker is the intermediary who takes the shares from the person who wants to sell and winds up giving it to the person that wants to buy the stock. Car dealerships are really just like that. You don't want your car anymore. Rather than selling it yourself, which is harder and inconvenient, you take it to a dealer, the dealer buys the car, and then the dealer finds somebody else to sell the car to. There's really no new production. There's no new anything taking place. We're just changing the ownership of the individual firm. Well, and it seems like even at a dealership, the, the guy at the Chevy dealership knows Chevy's. Right, and he knows what's what's unique about this Chevy versus another Chevy, but that's not necessarily true at the stock market, is it? It's true to some extent. There are brokers, and the brokers do specialize in specific stocks, so they have some idea of the the companies and which are good companies and which are bad companies. Um, and really, the the people that are giving advice and dealing are sort of like uh, used car dealers in the sense that. If there is a problem, if there's a bad company and you shouldn't buy the stock, then the dealer may not operate in your own interest. The dealer may just be interested in selling you the lemon, just as if there's a bad car on the dealership that car dealer can't get rid of. They may say, gee, this is a good car. There are no problems with it, and you wind up buying a lemon there also. Interesting. So the, the, dealers, you know, the, the dealers in both cases – don't have the interest of the consumer first and foremost. It's the consumer that needs to do a lot more homework. Yeah, I guess we're the ones that would need to, before we before we go down to the dealership, we need to know what we're looking for, what's a good deal, do the research. I mean, this is, this is enormous. When you look at the fact that the New York Stock Exchange, uh, your article says, trades about $200 billion a day. I mean, there's money to be made just moving stocks, whether they're lemons or whether they're great deals. 
Mm-hmm. Just the, the same way that the car dealer makes money by <clears throat> buying a car and then selling it for more. Um, the, uh, the stock dealer makes money by buying stocks and then selling it for a little bit more, and they take a small fraction on both parts of the trade. And so it's in the interest of the, the dealer or the broker for as much activity as possible. Now, so explain, because one thing that um, has me, I guess, a little worried about the stock market, and I'm naive to the whole thing, is uh, President Trump is sworn in, and then all of a sudden we get a Trump bump in the in the stock exchange uh, with a 15% gain in the Standard & Poor's, and I know that's been dropping uh, ever since, I guess, but why would we get a bump? I guess it's all speculative, right? It's on future change. A lot of the uh, prices uh, of stocks is is a function of what people think is going to happen in the future. Uh, so there is some of that, and and I think the increase now is somewhere about eleven percent rather than fifteen percent. There's been a slight decline fairly recently. Um, at its peak, it was somewhere around fifteen percent. I think some of it was just the uncertainty about the election, and nobody knew what was going to happen. And one famous saying about Wall Street is Wall Street hates uncertainty. Mm. Um, And that's one of the reasons why stocks typically increase by a good amount the year after a presidential election, because there's some sense of stability until the next presidential election. But I think there was also a lot of hope that the president would wind up doing things like reducing regulations on business firms. And so that's going to cut their costs back tremendously, and that's going to result in more profits. More profitable companies means that the stocks are now worth a whole lot more. Hmm. It's so also interesting, result- just something happening today. I mean, like him being, uh, you know, struggling to get the health care initiative through Congress also impacts the stock market as well. Um, well, I, I think that that probably impacts directly the health care stocks a whole lot more than the market as a whole. But the market as a whole is also looking at, can Trump get through his agenda? If he can pass his agenda, get it through Congress and make it law so that there are tax cuts, um, people might have more money to spend, there's reduced regulation um, on businesses so they make more profits. There's a big infrastructure program. And more jobs are created and people have more money and they're spending and everything looks good, that's going to be good for stocks. The, the stocks, even though they're used cars, um, it's ownership of the individual company. And if that company is making more profits, stocks will increase in price. Hmm. And so the, the, the health care issue going on now is about can the Republicans in Congress pass their agenda? Can they do what the president wants? And if people are thinking, well, wait a minute, if he can't get health care through, can he get his infrastructure program through? Can he get tax reform through? Can he get deregulation through? And if all of that's now uncertain and nobody thinks that the president can do that, then the stocks are not worth as much. Interesting. And you you made it a real point in your article um, that you, you kind of want to puncture the mystique of Wall Street just simply, which I guess is why it works well to call it like a used car lot. We're just moving cars because it helps us – that we kind of understand because the mystique, I guess, gets a lot of credit uh, and blame for, for things that it, it may not even be really doing. And 
the the thing that bothers me the most is just the excessive focus on Wall Street rather than what's important, which is production and jobs and income for the economy. And Wall Street doesn't do a lot of that. Right. That's that's a great point because Wall Street doesn't care about jobs. It cares about about stock increase. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't care even about quality and, and the and producing the right kind of products unless it immediately leads to stock increase. And and sometimes the immediate increase in stock prices is good immediately for the firm and for the CEOs and for the people who own the stock, but that immediate price increase may have bad long-term consequences, such as the firm's not investing enough in research and development. It's not putting enough money into training its workers so that they can be more productive in the future. And as a result, future profits are hurt and the economy's hurt in the future just because everybody's focused on the bottom line right now. Right. And, um, I I mean, I guess that makes sense, too, which is why exporting jobs to other countries is such a good idea, because it could be directly correlating to stock price. Yeah. You can make the product cheaper. Yes. If if they can find cheaper labor or cheaper parts abroad, then the firm can make more profit. It shows up on its quarterly statements. The stock price rises. The senior executives whose bonuses are tied to the stock price wind up benefiting a large uh, amount. And the question then is, can this be sustained? Is this sustainable or not in the long run? And in lots of cases, it's not. Hmm. Is And I, I guess we all assume there's a correlation between quality and innovation and stock price, but not, I guess that doesn't correlate always. No, and in fact, if you think of the innovation, a lot of the innovation isn't going on in the huge companies that are traded on stock exchanges. A lot of the innovation are the small companies, the medium-sized companies, and those companies generally don't trade on Mm. stock exchanges. Uh, the, The small companies that start up, they typically get their money from themselves, their savings. They'll take a home equity loan. They'll borrow money from family and friends to start up the business. Then the business gets a little bit bigger, and the next step is they need some money. And so they typically will go to a local bank and see if they can get loans from the bank. It's only when the firms start to think much more uh, broader and larger and expanding a lot do they realize that they need enormous sums of money. And it's at that point they go to Wall Street and uh, they print up shares of stock now. They go public and they seek to sell that stock to get money in for that expansion. Interesting. And, and, and boy, that really opens up our minds because we, we do hear that, you know, Donald Trump, President Trump has so many, you know, um, billionaires on board who have, you know, tycoons that have made big money in Wall Street. And yet if they, I guess a lot of their philosophies may be very short-sighted as opposed to, you know, the middle-sized companies of America. Mm-hmm. Boy, it's it, it really is kind of a tangled web. And I guess... I guess in the end, too, um, we look at this, I guess, is is normal for everything. As we're trying to create healthcare solutions, we might be creating solutions that might move stock prices, but in the end may not be good, you know, deep yeah. down. Yeah. No, the, the, the right thing is always to try to find the right balance between 
uh, thinking short-term and thinking long-term. Uh, in, in economic parlance, everything has trade-offs, and you need to sort of figure out the, the best way to navigate between the two extremes. Yeah, interesting. There's also this dot-com bomb I want to talk about as well, and are we overinflating some of these uh, tech companies? Let's do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Pressman. He is a professor of economics at Colorado State University and emeritus professor of economics and finance from Monmouth, Monmouth University and uh, also serves as the North American editor of the Review of Political Economy and associate editor of the Eastern Economic Journal. We're talking about an article, Why Wall Street is Like a Used Car Lot, trying to demystify, if we can, take away the mystique, I guess, of, uh, of Wall Street. Stick with us. We'll take a break. We'll be right back, helping you uh, lead and be better leaders of your own financial welfare. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Everybody, today we are talking about basically stock market 101, and uh, joined by Stephen Pressman, who's a professor of economics at Colorado State University, and he wrote an article, "Why Wall Street is Like a Used Car Lot." He's helping us understand and hopefully de, uh, demystify, I guess, take away the mystique surrounding Wall Street. Um, to help us understand, you know what? It might be better to just think of it as a dealership where people bring their cars to trade and you can go to one place to get and pick up a car um, or to pick up a stock. Have I, have I got that right, Stephen? Yep, exactly right. And it's it really is. So the reason we need a Wall Street, it's just it's just I guess it's more it's efficiency. It's right. It's it's the ability to transfer our cars. And if I go to a dealership and they treat me right and I get a pretty good price, then I can maybe turn my cars over more regularly. Is that what our goal with stocks is usually? Um, uh, in a lot of cases, that's the goal with stocks. If you if you think uh, uh, again in terms of the car analogy. If you have a car and the car is a little old and you feel as though you're ready for a new car, you really have two options. One is you can take out an ad and try to sell the car yourself, um, and then you don't know who's going to come by. You don't know who's going to see the ad. You don't know what kind of a price you're going to get. You don't know when you're going <clears> to <throat> be able to sell it. Or the other option is you take it to a car dealer, and the car dealer will offer you a price, and you'll sell it immediately. Right. And in terms of sort of convenience, uh, you're much better off going to a car dealer than you are holding on to the car and then trying to sell it on your own. Yeah. Um, and the stock market does that. It, it gives people what uh, economists call liquidity. It gives you the ability to get rid of something that you don't want anymore. And um – one of the things I wonder, because one of the ideas you brought up is sometimes these companies will go to the stock market to to raise money. They'll put their company up on the market and you know offer shares, and those new shares can then be sold, and that might generate some money to create new products and other things. Is but that's really, I guess, not what the majority of the stock market is being used for. That's correct. All of the all of the things that flash on the screens and make front-page news when there's a big increase or a big decrease are basically used cars. The, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500, those are all 
established companies. And it's the stock has been out there for many, many years, in some cases decades and decades. And it's just the price of the stock based on, on trading that particular day or in some cases that particular minute. And that's all that's happening is the price of the existing shares are going up and down. And those were the shares that at some point way back in time were shares that were printed up and sold because the company needed some more money. Hmm. Um, and so new firms that are starting up um, will print up shares of stock to try to obtain money to expand. And those are called uh, IPOs, initial yeah. public offerings. And that's actually now one of the, the the functions of a stock market that's good and important is it provides money to firms that are now thinking of moving from an intermediate size to a large size and now it has access to lots and lots of money um, and also uh, people might be willing to buy the shares of stock because they know that on a moment's notice they could go to a broker or a dealer and just sell the stock. Yeah, and, and be done. And they're in and out of it, which I guess leads to kind of the the day trader mentality where people could be selling, you know, they could just, they could keep the stock for half a day, right? Or a few minutes and just ride it for a little bit and then sell it. Yeah, and it, it's it's even worse than that. And this is, this is sort of the part of the stock market that I don't like. The, uh, the day traders uh, or the, the minute traders or really the the millisecond traders um uh, michael lewis's flash boys um an excellent book described uh the the building of a cable between chicago and new jersey to try to be able to make trades um uh, just uh, a few milliseconds before everybody else so if some news becomes public by sitting at a terminal and hitting buy or sell, wow. they could sell or buy before everybody else buy just a tiny fraction of a second. And they're able to make money because they get in faster than anybody else. They've made their money, and then they can get out, and they've, they've made their money. Yeah. But I think the real question is, is this something that contributes to a well-functioning economy? I mean, is this what we want to, you know, some of our best minds to do? Right, no. Sit and, and trade stocks, hold on to them for a fraction of a second, and then sell them to make a, a large sum of money. That just doesn't seem to me to be something that will lead to the long-term viability and growth and, and functioning uh, of an economy. Oh, no, I, I agree. And uh, almost it seems like kind of just as – Maybe dangerous is so many people that jump onto a, an initial IPO and that they're excited about because they use Snapchat and yet mm -hmm. and so all of a sudden Snapchat is it possible for it to be so overvalued because of just enthusiasm and excitement that it but it's not doesn't actually carry the worth. Yeah, well, for, for most IPOs it's really very difficult to know what these firms are worth. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no there's no long term history of what these firms have done. There's no way to track, you know, the way we could track for like a retail outlet what sales have been and what profits have been over dozens and dozens of years. Right. 
and there's no way to assess. Okay, wh- you know, what are they? What are they doing in terms of expansion? That's a little bit different from what they've done before, and is this likely to be a little bit better or a little bit worse? Those are reasonably good things that you know are, we should be able to make estimates about. But when you have a brand new company that really hasn't been out there for a long time and is now trying to expand in a massive way, we've got no history to rely on to be able to figure out whether or not this is going to wind up making a lot of money or not. And then it becomes driven by human psychology. Mm. Which may not be as, I mean, as, as healthy, I guess. And one of the things I worry about is, is there a bubble? We hear people talking about there might be a bubble out there with some of these tech companies as they actually settle into what they might actually be worth. Is the market going to correct itself? You know, is that, is that a natural function of this market? Or is it too inflated by day tra- traders and others uh, who are in the market? Well, probably the best uh, measure of whether stocks are inflated or not that people look at is the um, ratio of uh, uh, stock prices relative to the earnings of the firm. And historically, um, over 100 years or so, uh, for the S&P 500, that ratio has been somewhere around 15, and now it's somewhere close to 18. So it's a little bit higher, but it's not enormously higher than it's been historically. Yeah. Is it's it's interesting too because we have our 401k's, we have so much wrapped up into this and yet really so many of us I feel like are are so uneducated about it. What would you recommend to the listeners to make sure that they are they're not going in and buying the lemon or just, you know, taking the advice of somebody that maybe just trying to, you know, make money for themselves. Um, well, there, there, there are a couple of general rules, um, and uh, the, the general rules are, number one, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Um, and that means that you should have uh, stocks that are somewhat diversified. Um, a, a good way to diversify is just to buy some mutual fund, which, is, uh, it, which purchases the stocks in the S&P 500. So basically, you own 500 different companies. They're all well-established companies, uh, S&P 500 companies. And then the second rule is, since the stock market is to some extent completely irrational and you never know when there's going to be a boom or a bust, the best strategy is generally just buy and hold. Yeah, stay in. Um, Stay in. Don't panic when things get really horrible. Um, don't start buying when things are going way up, thinking it's going to go up forever. And then, you know, the third thing is find a mutual fund which has very low fees. Um, Think about going to a car dealership. Um, You want to go to a car dealership that's going to give you the lowest price, um, which basically means that the car dealership that's making the least amount of money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You you don't want to end up spending all this money just to get the car. Yeah, and be under. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to pay more than you have to yeah. for the car that you buy, and you don't want to pay more than you have to for the stocks that you own. So you want to keep your costs of buying as low as possible, and you want to diversify. And diversify just means buy buy some indexed fund uh, with relatively low costs, and then just sit on the damn thing. <laughs> 
Yeah. Do, do you sense um, we talk a lot about President Trump? We hear a lot of news about how, you know, foreign nations interpret his his personality and some of his behavior is because if the stock market demands some pretty predictable, consistent um, and, and actually thrives in its consistency of of the status of the country. Um, do we need to worry about a president that maybe is willing to mix it up a little bit more, maybe make a comment that others may not make? Uh, yes, I, I, I certainly worry about uh, what the president is going to be tweeting at 3 o'clock in the morning and how that might affect both the stock market in general and particular companies. Yeah. Um, and so that, that certainly is a worry. Um, and uh, as long as we've got a president who's completely unpredictable and can do weird things at any point in time, we need to worry about the potential for greater uh, volatility in the stock market. Because we, we see that he could bring down the stock in a company by 10, 5%, 10%, 3% by just simply dissing their product or taking them on. I mean, it's a, the companies now are preparing for him with PR blitzes to be able to respond immediately. Yeah. yeah well, and remember, he can also do good for companies. Absolutely. Well. So it works, it works both ways. Yeah, I guess, yeah, that that becomes a whole new world of politics, doesn't it? Trying to manage um, manage his mercurial ways. Well, we appreciate you, Stephen. Thank you so much for your great insight and your great work there as professor of economics at Colorado State University. Thank you again for having me. You bet. We'll have you back. Uh, making it simple, folks, taking something as complicated as Wall Street and helping us understand it using a great metaphor, the used car lot. We'll take a break, my friends, helping you be the best in the world. We'll take a break. Be back. Stick with us. When you're alone and feeling down in the dumps, be grateful you don't live in town town. I have lived here a little less than a year, and it really blows town town. Just look at the incompetence of the mayor of the city. His power plants and public parks are anything but pretty. How did he win? The spies fly much higher here. You can't escape all the humming of drones in the air above town, town. You're gonna hate it here, town, town. Get out while you can, town, town. Everyone's watching you, town, town. You'd better scurry, there's a mysterious slurry moving down the road. Town, town, don't hang around, the noxious gas will surround you and melt your clothes. Town, town, so head down to the border and immediately cross over, or you'll be decomposing long before the night is over, rotting alive. The nights are so scary here, so please remember we warned you, we told you to steer clear of town, town, a grimy place for sure, town, town, don't stay a minute more, town, town, death is waiting for you, town, town, town. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Jeffrey uh, spinning some vinyls for us. Hey, um, because because Jeff just played the uh, Town Town song, I think it's important that I update everybody on my my adventure as um, the mayor of Townton Abbey. The this is my sim my simulated city from the game Sim City that I play on my phone. Uh, I have grown my own town. I wanted to get a feel, a little taste for what President Trump is trying to do. And so I built my own town called Townton Abbey. And I have a just a booming downtown area called Towntown. Um, but this the city is up to 123,000, if we're rounding people, 123,000 uh, fans, raving fans, with a 98% happiness. Raving lunatics? No, 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 raving fans. Not lunatics, but they're really happy with what's going on in Townton Abbey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, the people are happy. A lot of neat things are happening. We just opened up uh, the um, lighthouse. It's now there and available. Pretty soon I'll be opening up some yeah, other you, beach amenities. You had to get rid of, of that problem of all those ships crashing. Yeah, yeah. Because I need my ships to come in. That's how we. That's how we pay for a lot of the goods. Um, that's how we also. I also opened up an airport, which is a really big thing. Um, I also just opened up my mountain resort area, and, and just started putting some condos up there in the mountain resort area. And there's actually a decline in passengers being removed from the airplanes too. No, that's interesting. We we did have an issue uh, removing violently removing two or three people from airplanes. And I've decided to give them a free lunch or they can get tased and dragged off the plane. A free lunch? That's all it takes. So it's either a free lunch to move your seat or we have to tase you. So most people are taking the lunch. Yeah. Anyway, Townsend Abbey, it's doing so well. um, And I I don't know. I don't want to brag. But to be a mayor with 98% happiness... And by the way, my people were at 100% happiness until I had to do some reconstruction. Um, but Are you referring to B? To B? The, the singer in that song, who was clearly not pleased with Town Town. No, 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 no. no yeah, B, B, I don't know where B is. She can't be, we can't find her. B is conveniently, missing. conveniently. She's. I think she went to live with her family in another town. Aren't they all dead? I think it's called Simpsonville. And um, we accept refugees in Simpsonville, <laughs> and they're flocking. They're coming in droves. Yeah, ours are coming in drones. I am about. I'm about. Uh, I'm about three golden keys away from being able to open up a drone center. You already had drones. You've got drones spying on people. That's why there's the happiness level, because they don't feel like they can be anything else. No, I don't have that yet, but but we're working for it. So if you're you're a member of Townton Abbey, if you're on SimCity, you can go find my my city and buy my goods. Just just look up my marketplace, Townton Abbey. 
Um, there's no money being made here for real. It's just I'm, I'm going to grow this town to about a million people. And then I'm going to look to international takeovers where I start owning the world. And slowly start making it be the way I want it to be. <laughs> and luckily, we have a few citizens who are wise to your act already. Yeah, my mom's all over it. She's really mad about how aggressive I'm being on it. So, anyway, just a little update on Townton Abbey. A lot of people, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people calling in wondering. So, there you have it. We'll take a break, my friends. Next hour, we'll continue the discussion. Stick with us, helping you be the best you can be. We'll be back. <laughs> 